Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. I've known today's guest for nearly a decade, and I'm really thrilled that she is joining me today. Jessica Strausser is editor-at-large for Writer's Digest, where she spent a decade as editorial director and did numerous in-depth interviews with such talents as David Sedaris and Alice Walker. She is the author of book club favorites, Almost Missed You, Not That I Could Tell, Book of the Month bestseller, Forget You Know Me, and her latest, A Million Reasons Why, which was named to the most anticipated list from Goodreads, She Reads, Frolic, and more. Her fifth novel, The Next Thing You Know, is coming March 2022, all from St. Martin's Press. She has written for The New York Times, Modern Love, Publishers Weekly, and others, and is a popular speaker at writing conferences. She lives with her husband and two children in Cincinnati, where she was named the 2019 Writer-in-Residence for the Public Library of Cincinnati and Hamilton County. So Jessica, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I can't believe that tripped me up when you said we've known each other for 10 years. I guess we ha it has been almost a decade, really. I really think so. We first met, I think, at a uh, Writers Conference uh, Thriller Fest in New York City. Thriller Fest. Yeah, yeah. You, were, you were up for an award. I might have been, but... <laughs> you were don't be modest you were oh my goodness. and you were teach we, you were teaching and I was covering uh writers digest used to be like a co-sponsor of thriller fest yeah. where we would send these daily email roundups to their list for well now a lot of events are concurrently virtual but before mm -hmm. that we would I would literally go to the sessions and take notes about um, some of the best points in the sessions and we'd make a newsletter out of it and send it to the list. And um, I remember going to your session and just being blown away by what a great teacher you were and thinking, I've got to get this guy to start contributing to the magazine. And so I approached uh, you immediately and then yeah. you became, yeah, the rest, as they say, is history, right? You became <laughs> well, I really appreciate those kind words. What's that? You became a regular contributor to the magazine and yeah, yeah. featured articles for years. And we've had the chance to speak together at many other conferences. And yeah, and now I'm writing too. So you rubbed off on me. Oh my goodness. So. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I have always enjoyed um, your writing. Also, just the work that you did with, uh, with Writer's Digest all of those years. And so, but I'm thrilled for the new uh, directions that your life has taken with all of the books that you've been writing over the last uh, few years. And also your success of teaching at writers conferences nationwide. So I'm I'm really thrilled that we get the chance to catch up and and chat story and storytelling. So um, now one of the things I was thinking of is when you teach at writers conferences, both you have experience as an editor, also as an author. What what's one of the things you're most passionate about sharing with aspiring authors? I really and don't you miss? Let's just take a minute to miss writing conferences. <laughs> I really. <laughs> I really think they're just not the same 
virtually. A, a lot of organizations have put on a really noble effort. Um, mm-hmm. It's definitely better than nothing, but there's just something about the energy of being in a place with so many other aspiring writers. And um, yeah, you know yourself, your workshops are so dynamic. I mean, you throw paper and you throw paper. (laughs) Um, But mine, I think my favorite thing to talk about. So, you know, so many people are skilled at doing these nuts and bolts sessions, which obviously I'm very passionate about the nuts and bolts of writing, having been, you know, the editor of WD for so many years. And I, you know, I still contribute from the outside. But one of the things that I like to focus on when I go to these events is motivation Hmm. um, and inspiration and just the positive energy that you can do this. Because I think um, the energy of the conference is so great. And then, but it can can also be so overwhelming. You have so much information coming at you. And then I think a lot of people come home and it just fizzles. They have all these great ideas. They have all these notes. They have the program. I'm going to follow up with this person and I want to read this person's book. And I, and then they get home and regular life resumes and the next thing they know, all of the notes they were so excited about in that binder are, mm-hmm. you know, they stumble across their bag. They haven't even unpacked their like shoulder bag that they carried around. <laughs> you know, and maybe that's just me as a mom, you know, a working mom <laughs> with young kids. But I think a lot of people, um, the energy of the event is so good. And then yeah. you go home and it's so easy to lose it. And so what I, I really like to focus on you know, helping to give people strategies to keep that energy and to keep the, I don't want to say discipline is definitely a big part of it, but I really believe in the power of forward momentum. Hmm. I mean, very literally like you're pedaling a bike. It's easier to keep pedaling than it is to from stopping, you know, especially if you get to a part where you're starting to get stuck going uphill or whatnot and I I think it's so important you know it's easier to keep writing a story that you're already writing than it is to start something that you haven't started yet and so I think you know I I give a talk that's actually some of my favorite lessons from um all the interviews I did when I was at Writers Digest um I've given it as a keynote and I've also given it just as an instructional session but it's my 10 best writing lessons from 10 years of interviewing the all-time best writers, and a number of those lessons um, revolve around finding a way to harness that momentum and finding a routine that works for you. Not what you're supposed to do, not, oh, I have to write this many words a day, or I have to try to write every day, but like realistically in your own life, how you're going to translate um, that energy into mo- momentum that you can actually sustain and a routine that you can make work for you and not lose that magic, you know, when you go home or when you log off at the end of the virtual conference. No, that's good because what you said is, is very true. I mean, I've seen that. I think it's even, I've experienced it. You go somewhere to an event and super excited and come home and all of a sudden life swimmers over you. What are a couple of the strategies that you've given to people sort of help them get that momentum and keep it rolling. Do you encourage people to write every day or, or however it fits in with their life scheme at this point? What's sort of your take on that? I think um, 
giving yourself to prioritize mm. your, your own writing, giving yourself permission to prioritize your own writing, even if you think of it as a hobby and your family and friends think of it as a hobby, you know, it's something you're not getting paid for yet. You have a lot of other responsibilities, giving yourself permission to make that a priority in your life and say no mm. to other things, you know, say no to uh, the invitation to go out for drinks after work or to the um, extra soccer team that your kid wants to be on in the <laughs> off season just for fun or to, you know, whatever it is that's going to strap your time. No, I can't come into the office on Saturday. That's when I work on my novel. You know, um, I think a lot of people are just really reluctant to give themselves permission <laughs> to make it a priority and to go ahead and schedule it in your life. Cause nobody else is going after this for you. No one's going to help, you know, um, there are some points I, there's a really great long quote from Lisa Scottolini that I talk about in my, in my talk that I just referenced where she's, but she makes the great point that nobody else is going to want this for you. No Mm. one's going to want it as much as you. Yeah. Um, So whether it's writing every day or whether it's just making the space, maybe you can't write that day, but you still make the space to consciously think about what you're going to do next while you're on a walk or while you're doing something else, you know, making it a priority in your life, more making sure that you have some time for it on a regular basis. So you can keep that momentum going, even if it's not as much time as you would like. Yeah. Every sack, every dream requires a sacrifice, doesn't it? And you have to just choose what it's going to be, you know, where your, your energy is going to be directed. Um, the first nobody wants to nobody wants to talk about that part. I know, right? <laughs> it doesn't um, sound good. There's going to be sacrifices along the way. <laughs> yeah. Before you were even at Writer's Digest, I don't know if you knew this or not, but I wrote a couple of articles for previous editors there, and the very first uh, one that I wrote was a long time ago. I don't even know when, but anyway, it was called Six Things You Believe About Writing and Why They Are Wrong," or something like that. Right. And one of them was don't quit your day job. That's what everybody always says. Don't quit your day job. And I said in this article at the time, you have to quit your day job. Now, people are like, what? Quit my day job. How am I going to pay the bills? I mean, mentally, here's what I'm saying is like we only have so many hours a day of super productivity. Right. So it's like, where are you going to throw that? And when you look at yourself, how do you view yourself? And I remember there came a moment where um, I was working with this one editor and he's like, well, what do you do when you're not writing? I was like, well, I do this, that I teach this. He goes, no, but you're a writer. I was like, I'm not a writer. I just do this and this. And he goes, no, you're a writer. And I'm like, I'm a writer, you know? And, but it was like this shift in my mind. I started thinking of myself as a writer and saying, yeah, I do other stuff to help pay the bills, but mentally that's my identity now. And that was a huge difference for me in the way that I looked at things. And then it was easier for me when I sort of grabbed hold of that identity of saying, I'm a writer. It was easier for me to make some of those choices that you just spoke about. And for me, I never even, it was almost like a secret. I was sort of, when I started pursuing my own writing, I was sort of doing it in the closet almost, you know, I was, (laughs) I worked in publishing on the other side of the desk and the idea that I was, you know, trying to pursue this on my own wasn't something 
I felt very comfortable talking about because I had no idea, you know, if it was going to work out. Um, I knew I was a good editor. I knew I was a good nonfiction writer. I didn't know if I had it in me to be a good writer or not. But I think, you know, so I didn't, I didn't talk about, I'm a writer also, you know, (laughs) for me, it wasn't so much, but I definitely did make that switch in my brain that this is important to me. There you go. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'm giving this an honest go. And I think, and, you know, when I published my first two novels, my kids were, I mean, they were babies, Mm -hmm. um, infants, and I had a full-time job you know, as an editorial director yeah. of a magazine. So I did my writing almost exclusively while they were um, sleeping after they were oh, in bed. Yeah. And there were a number of years where I really didn't get very much sleep at all. <laughs> I wasn't a very fun friend. I was very disciplined about, you know, no, I can't go out to happy hour because I need to not be sleep. You know, that one glass of wine is going to make me sleepy and then I won't be, have it in me to stay up and do this, you know, later. So, you know, even if everyone else at the office is going out to celebrate something or even though my writing wasn't happening right then, it wasn't happening for a few hours, just really being disciplined about, no, this is, I have this time carved out in my brain and I'm, no one even knows that this is why I'm saying no, I'm not advertising it, but this is why I'm saying no. And I think, over the years, so many people have said to me, um, how did you do that when your kids were so young? You know, like, I, or I wish I had time to do that. I don't Mm. have time. Well, I didn't have time either. Yeah. You know, you make the time if you really want it. Um, you make the time regardless of the circumstances, whether you quit your day job. Mentally at least, you know, but, um, but no, I, the thing that strikes me is that now you're more fun, right? That? Now I am more fun because oh, I did quit my day job. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. So um, and I'm more, a little more rested. I mean, I think sleep really, <laughs> a little more rested. Sleep was really the thing that I probably sacrificed, you know, more than yeah. anything. But yeah. Now I over the years, as I've spoken with uh writers uh, both on the podcast and also just in person, I found sort of what I think is I think that some authors, uh, novelists, are instinctively storytellers. Some are instinctively wordsmiths. In other words, not, not you can't be both, but some people, like the story comes naturally and it takes more work to get all maybe the words exactly right. Other people kind of really work on the words and maybe story aspect is what they need a little more help with. For you, what seems to come more naturally, or maybe they both do, but I was just curious in your writing, have you found one of those two channels to be more instinctive and the other one, the way you have to work at it more. I really like, uh, I like, it's weird because people talk about um, stories being driven by either a character or a plot Mm -hmm. so often. Um, I really like to build a story around a theme Mm -hmm. or like a question Mm -hmm. that I don't know the answer to, you know, and I'm kind of writing to find the answer you know, just as much as the reader is. So for example, um, my newest novel, A Million Reasons Why, is about um, two adult women who are linked as half-sisters by one of those mail-in DNA test kits. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had read a lot of really interesting stories about people who have had 
um, unexpected results from those DNA tests, whether okay. they were, you know, took the test knowing that they had family out there, you know, like with families with adopted children, for instance, you know, knowing that they had biological parents out there or that they had other family members and taking the test to see if they could find them or people who just take the test expecting to find out what percentage Irish they are. Hmm. And then all of a sudden there's a whole different family popping up and they're thinking, you know, wait a second. (laughs) Um, But I, I was so fascinated by those real life stories and I you know, why am I so interested by this? And I think it's because of the questions that it raises, you know, what does it really mean to what does it mean to be a family? Hmm. What does it mean to share DNA with somebody? If you find, if you're, you know, a fully functional, fully formed adult living your own life, and then you find out that you have a half sister somewhere, um, should you pursue a relationship with that person? If it's going to tear down some, if it's going to bring some things to the surface that might tear up some relationships that were working perfectly well in your life um should you leave it alone Hmm. do you deserve to know all of your parents or your grandparents secrets you know um for me if i'm interested in something sometimes it's interesting to just kind of ask myself why and so i decided i wanted to build a story around that you know that's Um, great yeah so i think for me it's that's what's intuitive to me is coming up with uh you know a, a kind of story that might ask yourself what you would do in that situation and make you really kind of think about, yeah, just human nature and what's really important and um, kind of big picture questions, but then imagining some people and imagining who that might happen to um, and what if scenarios is very natural to me. Um, More of the mechanics of structuring the story and planning it out are the things that I really have to work at. Mm. Uh, once I have kind of the beating heart. So I think I'm good at keeping my finger on. I've heard of people who have to kind of write on a, they'll write even on a post-it note, like what the story is really about and Mm. stick it on their monitor to remind themselves. I'm usually pretty good. Usually I know what I'm writing about, but it's the mechanics of how I'm going to get there (laughs) (laughs) that I need to work on. Now, I like actually what you said, you know, that a lot of people look at this sort of plot driven or character driven. And I've talked about this on the podcast before with with other people. And my view isn't really, I don't really share the view either that stories need to sort of be in one direction or another, but all stories I think are tension driven. That's my view. And Mm -hmm. that what you just pointed out where you start with a dilemma, I think that's so brilliant because some people, it seems like they start with an agenda instead of a dilemma. And when you read their story, you're like, okay, I get it. I'm supposed to think this or do this or vote this way or whatever it might be. But the stories I think that really resonate with me are ones where I'm, I'm reading it or maybe I'm watching a show on television or something. I'm thinking, first of all, I don't know where this is going. And mm-hmm. second of all, these are good questions that are, I don't know the answers to. And so those are the kind of stories, human nature, like you mentioned, that I feel like really stand the test of time better than ones that are agenda driven and trying to, you know, make a certain point, whatever that, whatever that might be. It's interesting. I mean, I've written about, I've written from questions before. I think all of my books have had like a thematic question at the center. Um, But this is, this one definitely, I think posed the biggest moral dilemma. And it's interesting because there really aren't, 
right or wrong answers. And I think those are the stories, at least for me as a reader, those are the stories that I tend to find myself still thinking about after I've finished them, you know, where you kind of relate, not just to the character, but to the whole situation. And it kind of makes you think about your own life. And, you know, I think that's what the best fiction can do is make us all more empathetic Mm -hmm. human beings and kind of look at something from the other side, right? It's all about the gray area. And I see my characters in Shades of Gray too. I think there's very little black and white Hmm. in the real, in the world, you know, good guys, bad guys. (laughs) Everybody's got a little bit of everything, you know. I think the more nuanced our characters are, like, you know, instead of caricatures, he's always there. Everything he does is perfect or everything he does is messed up or whatever. I like that you explore those areas, the nuanced areas of good and bad and evil and how it threads through every one of us. And it's a struggle for, I think, everyone to choose the right path and to face those questions. And those are the stories that that feel true or honest, I think, because we look at the world and we see it as a certain way. And then we read a certain book. And we're like, this isn't really believable, maybe because it's caricatures or whatever it is. But other stories we read are like, that rings true to the world, to human nature. Those are the powerful ones, I think. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, one thing that isn't spoken about a lot at certain writers' conferences and books and so on is voice. Now, I was curious, from your experience, either writing or, or interviewing or writing articles about stuff, what's your take on an author's voice and how do they uncover it? Uh, You got to, Hamilton wrote his way out, right? I think you have to write your way in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's what I do once I have an idea for a story. Uh I think that can be one of the hardest things when you get started is trying to find the voice. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of my there's the author's voice and there's also the character's voice, right? Yeah, tell us um, about that. And hopefully the author's voice fades into the background. But I know <laughs> when you say that all of my books are, at least all five of them so far, have been written from multiple points of view. Mm-hmm. So I would say that they have, you know, there's my voice, but then there's also multiple characters' voices where you're hearing a million reasons why, for example, since it's telling the sister, the story of these two half-sisters, um, it alternates back and forth between the voices of the two sisters. And I was really thinking of it as I was thinking of half sisters, very literally, like this one has this half of the story and this one has this half mm. of the story. And we need both of their voices to get the whole story. Mm. And so, um, there was sort of, you know, the voice of the story and my voice, but I also needed those two sisters to be very distinctive, from each other. I would never want you to be on a page at any point in the story and have to like flip back and say, wait, which sister Uh, am I reading? Hmm. Um, Which I think there are, there are certain books where that can happen. Yeah. um, Where you kind of start to think, wait, which character is it? (laughs) I'm so, I try to be really particular about hopefully that not happening in my, in my books. I hope. (laughs) Now that's pretty fascinating because your story kind of has multiple or dual protagonists or whatever, you know, people want to say about that. And a lot of times, you know, the the, um, advice out there is like, choose one character and this is whose story you're telling. 
Now, even in the way that you structured your book, you were saying, kind of want half the book to be, you know, with each of these two characters. Was there one that seemed to you to be more of the main character slash protagonist? Or did it just feel like this was a story um, of these two intertwined lives? I think this is the first one where there really hasn't been one that kind of floated to the top. I would say because my three earlier novels were both told from three different, um, were all told from three different points of view. I had always had three. Um, this was the first time that I only had two. Hmm. And it really did feel um, really balanced to me. Of yeah. course, they're sharing they're sharing this experience. I mean, from the very, the, the email has already been sent at the start of the story. <laughs> hey, I think you're my sister. So oh, yeah. from the very beginning, it is both of their stories and, it, and it's going back and forth. But I have had other books where um, it's not always even. I like playing with point of view um, from the standpoint that I like playing with point of view in a way where if you're in the mind of a point, I write very a lot of closed third person point of view. So if you're in the mind of a character who's telling you their side of the story or their portion of the story, yeah. I like for them to be telling you something that you're only going to get if you're inside that character's mm. head. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, especially with my earlier novels were more categorized as domestic, domestic suspense. This one is a little bit more just kind of book club fiction, contemporary yeah. fiction. Um, but especially with the domestic suspense, kind of challenging myself to the reader that the, each character is telling you something that you're going to have to piece together um, to get this whole story. And I think it was, that is also true in this one. There's definitely still a suspenseful element, but um, that doesn't have to be equal. There are plenty of books out there with three different points of views where you mostly hear from one person. You know, I can think of a lot of thriller writers where you mostly hear from the protagonist, but once in a while you hear from the antagonist um, or, you know, somebody else in the story. It doesn't have to be even. I think there can still be a clear protagonist. But yeah, this is the first time that it really was. Yeah, I think there really are two. That's cool. I like that. Um, and a lot of the stories, the uh, novels I've written are what you just explained, you know, basically yeah. mainly the main character, but there are other voices that you, characters that appear and we hear what they're thinking and so on. So, yeah, I think, um, I think for me, when I'm working on, on a, a story and I have different characters, I mean, one of the questions that I'm asking myself is what would this character naturally do in this situation? What would they think? That's what sort of helps me climb into their voice so that so that they do sound different, because to me, they are different. They're I mean, I guess a part of me, but <laughs> maybe I'm multi whatever personality or something like that. But now, when you look at a story, do you now, you say you always say it has to be logical, but also surprising. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah twists and turns that that totally make sense, but that aren't predictable, you know. Yeah. And um and I was recently I reread Poetics by Aristotle and he brings up the same point. So it's nothing new that I just suddenly discovered, but storytellers for thousands of years have really known that the best or the most satisfying stories aren't just simply predictable cuz we're, we're not happy with that. And they're not so outlandish that we don't buy it. 
it's like they have they're believable but unpredictable so that when they move forward we say yes i should have seen that coming but i didn't whatever and so i think those are super interesting you know stories and observations well i think if you're and if while you're trying to write that story that is um not predictable if you're also playing with point of view and you're Mm. switching point of view a bit I think um you know a few years ago um, more than a few years ago now I what is time anymore I think (laughs) I'm just you know I think I would say ever since the success of uh Gone Girl and uh, girl on the train uh there's so much talk about unreliable narrators mm-hmm. for a while especially in the suspense space where there were these book breakout bestsellers that had like a highly unreliable narrator where yeah. you would find out you couldn't trust anything they said you would find out they were lying to you for half the book but I really like just if you take all the if you take the sinister psychopath <laughs> out of the equation and think about unreliable narrators I think that we all are to an extent and unreliable narrators Mm -hmm. i mean our perspective is narrowed to our own point of view um and so especially if you're weaving suspense into a story um and you want something to be unpredictable you can be very honestly portraying the way one Mm -hmm. character honestly sees something yeah Yeah. um but you're missing (laughs) a part of the big picture because that character honestly doesn't see it. So I think if you consider that every single voice in a story can be, every single perspective can be narrow and a little bit unreliable, then that opens up, you know, some different uh, storytelling avenues to let it all unfold. I love it. And so when you're when you're shaping your stories and when you're writing, you're exploring these dilemmas, these questions, these what if scenarios. What are some of the techniques that you use to keep readers flipping pages? So they're reading um, one chapter gets done or whatever it is. What is it that you're thinking of? I want to get them to read the next chapter, read the next page. Are there specific techniques or secrets that you've uncovered to help to help do that? I pay a lot of attention to how I end my chapters. Uh, um, I mean, I, I think I know a lot of writers do, but um, some don't. You can tell the ones who do and the ones who don't when you're <laughs> writing the book. I try, I will, I will write, you know, I will be at the end of what I think is a really solid chapter. And then I will just stare at that page sometimes for like half a day just trying to figure out the perfect note to end that chapter Mm -hmm. on. I think how you end each chapter uh, is hugely important Mm -hmm. to whether or not the reader wants to jump into the next one or whether they're okay with, you know, turning out the light and going to sleep. And I don't plan everything out in advance. So, you know, sometimes I need to know what's going next and then I can come back and yeah come up with a better way to end a chapter, but more or less, even in my first draft, I'll kind of know whether you're ending with the character realizing something or just a sense that something's not right. Or, you know, with somebody getting really upset with some, something that, you know, is going to have an implication for later in the story. Um, 
I play a lot with chapter endings. And then since I don't necessarily write from an outline, since I do tend to be a little bit more intuitive, um, I also follow the advice that I got. Gosh, I don't even think it was advice that I was given. I think it was advice that I probably stole from an uncle when I was working at Writer's Digest. I mean, that was the great thing about working there. All day long, I'm reading all this craft instruction. And then I go home and it's like, okay, it's time. Sometimes you'd be reading along and think, ah, I'm going to try that tonight. Or that's going to help me solve. That's going to help me solve what I'm trying to solve in my story right now. And one of my favorite tricks, especially going back to what I was saying about forward momentum and just trying not to let yourself stall out, is that if you don't know exactly what comes next, that it's okay to jump ahead to the next thing that you do know. So um, if I don't know exactly what comes next, sometimes I'll jump ahead to the next chapter that I do know. And I would say more often than not, when I do that, um, the bridge sort of appears. It's like you dream, you leap across the stream and the bridge kind of appears behind you as you're writing. Very Zen of you. You leap across the stream and the, and the bridge appears behind you. But I think it's. You realize how you're going to either you realize how to get there or you realize sometimes you realize that you really can just get straight there. Like sometimes you don't really need very much in between. If this is. And, in, and and I think in terms of making something more compulsively readable too, if you're eager to get onto that scene, then your reader might also be eager to get onto that scene. So maybe you don't need, so I think sometimes if you skip ahead just in your process, just trying to figure out where you're going, you might find out that you don't need a lot of fluff in between and, you know, kind of jump ahead faster. That's good advice. I like that. I kind of write... A little bit like that too, you know, I think, you know, I'm an organic writer, intuitive, whatever term you want to use. And so um, it's always interesting for me to hear different people's approaches. Um, but I like the idea of writing and and kind of coming to a spot where you're like, I'm not really sure what to write. Don't stop at that point. doesn't mean you can't write anything. You can dabble with ideas. You can go back, reread what you've written, see where it is. Maybe the bridge will appear. So I'm going to remember that. <laughs> Jump over the stream and the bridge will appear. I didn't mean to sound all like that. I've never used that metaphor before. I should well, probably not use it again. I think you should I'm use sure it. I'm better one. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should write it down. But sometimes um, the distance between A and B is, you know, a lot shorter than it seemed before you just, sometimes if you can just hop ahead to B, then you realize there's a very straight path there. And if you yeah. hadn't done that, you might've ended up taking, you know, a windy path and ended ended up having to cut all of that Hmm. later anyway. So. I mean, you know, a lot, a lot of connections, I think do happen subconsciously where, where we're writing and maybe, maybe because we just know what has to happen within a story that there are going to be struggles and setbacks and overcoming them revelations and red herrings and all of those things that when we write um, we come to this point and it's like, okay, instinctively, I kind of know that last scene wasn't strong or it was, you know, it needs a better transition or whatever. But but I, a lot of that comes just from dwelling in the story. And sometimes it takes months or years even for some people to really uncover that specific story. And I think that's okay. Yeah, I mean, and back to your earlier question about, you know, finding your voice as a writer or finding the voice as a character, there's really no way... I mean, I said, write your way in, but that's it. And sometimes when you're starting a new, a new manuscript, it'll be 
I will rewrite. It, it seems terrible to sit there and keep rewriting the first three chapters and not move forward. But mm. when it's not right, you know, sometimes you have to, sometimes it's when you're, you know, 10,000 words in that you hit a stride and you realize this is the voice of the character. Yeah. I need to, I know, or I know, or maybe you haven't even started in the right place, you know? Um, but I think the only way to find it is just to get the words down. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Dwelling in it. So many people, I think, put pressure on themselves after I had a certain number of words a day or, or they try to do a book every six months or I, whatever it might be. And I think those limitations, to a certain extent, might be helpful for some people in some cases. But but I just really believe that it's just going to take time. And sometimes you might write a thousand words in a day. Fantastic. Next day, you might write zero or delete a thousand or write six thousand. I mean, it's just spending the time devoting it to the story. And like what you said earlier, you know, like sacrificing what you need to in order to really make this a priority in your life. It's not easy. Um, I think it never, I don't know if it will ever hit me as much as it did at the beginning when it was like every hour I could steal at the keyboard was just mm-hmm. this precious, precious hour. I mean, obviously I still <laughs> value my writing time greatly, but yeah. And I had the full-time job and the babies that I was picking up from daycare every day and all that, you know, there's not really anything more frustrating than carving out the time, going to, into your office, writing, being like, oh my gosh, that came out so easily. I just, I, my goal today was a thousand words. I just wrote almost 2000 words, you know, and you're feeling really good. And you know, it's 1130 at night and you go upstairs to brush your teeth and everyone else in the house is already asleep and it's quiet and you can actually hear yourself think for once and you're not so <laughs> focused on that goal. And by the time you are, there were nights that by the time I was done brushing my teeth, I knew that the 2000 words I just wrote was not going to work. And I knew exactly why. Ah, <laughs> I shouldn't have written that scene this way. It would be so much better if it was this way or that thing I tapped on at the end, that should have been the beginning. That should have been the thread that carried the whole way through. But then you fig- then you have it figured out. And then you the very next night you sit down and you fix it and the only way to get to that better chapter is to write the bad one first. Mm. It's the only, if I didn't first write the trash 2000 words, I'm not going to have that moment where I'm brushing my teeth and thinking, wait a second, that wasn't right. (laughs) But now I know how to do it. You know, you can't get to the, now I know how you can't just jump straight to the, now I know how to do it moment. You have to do the, the other writing in between. That's what gets you there. Um, I think one time I was using this illustration that like a carpenter, whenever you go into a carpenter shop, that's a good carpenter, you'll see like shavings of wood everywhere. And that doesn't mean he's not doing his job. It means he actually is doing his job. There'll be sawdust, there'll be wood shavings. And so it is with writers, like sometimes we'll have word shavings that will be you know, scattered. It doesn't mean it's wasted time or effort. It's just part of the process of putting good stories together. 
I have learned to be very wary of my highly productive days. Like, if, <laughs> I, like that. If, if I am feeling really good about how many words I just turned turned out, like I kind of know by now to temper that. It was <laughs> always the night that I did like double the word count because I was trying to get at something. Yeah, I was yeah. being wordy. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, um, and never. I think that really hit me again uh, during the pandemic. It was. Um, it was the next thing you know, actually, that I, I was about 40,000 words into that manuscript when my kids' school closed in oh, wow. March 2020. And um, for a number of reasons, I had to change, you know, my husband does not have the flexibility. So, and my kids are way too young to self-direct mm-hmm. their learning. My my kids were in kindergarten and second grade at yeah, the time. Yeah. So, you know, I am now a full-time homeschool teacher and this is not this was not unique to me. This happened to tons of people. (laughs) Um, but I, I was doing it again. I was like panic writing. I would like, I would, and I had to switch my whole schedule. I was writing early in the morning instead of late at night, which is not a natural cycle for me, but it was like the only time I could find. And I would wake up and just be like, Oh, I got to get the words. I got to get the word. (laughs) I have never written so far over my word count. I mean, my entire, cause I would just keep going. I, I was just in a blind panic at that point. <laughs> I was just like, I'm never going to get this novel. I was under contract for this novel. How am I going to do this? The world is falling. I'm so stressed out. The world's falling apart. And, um, the efficient way to get that done is not to write a 130,000 word novel that then needs to be cut down to being like a 95,000. Oh word. no. Yeah. Um, but that's how I did it. <laughs> um, and it's just, yeah, but sometimes if the words are coming naturally, that's actually not even a good sign, but ultimately it is because you're getting at something, yeah. you know, whatever you need to do to like shake that loose in your brain and get to it. Um, it's not always pleasant. <laughs> that's when I start to wish that I was one of those outliners. Interesting. <laughs> but, oh, well. No, I, um, You know, it's just, it's so hard for me to even, you know, outline or whatever, but I just find that it, it takes more time because I outline something and all of a sudden I come back to it and it's just like not as strong. So it it just saves me enormous amounts of time to write organically because otherwise, uh, yeah, I would need to discard, but I mean, people are different and that's all good. So um, you mentioned a little bit about your um, your book that's available right now, A Million Reasons Why. And I was wondering, I know that one's available and you have another book coming out next spring, but tell us a little bit more about A Million Reasons Why. If there's anything you want to you know, share uh, without giving too many spoilers away, but um, I know this would be a good one for readers to check out if they're interested in reading you know, one of your more recent novels. Yeah, thank you. This is so a million reasons why is my book of the two half sisters. And um, I'm really proud of this now. It was strange to have to, you know, release any kind of book while the pandemic was still still going on. But I think this is probably my most ambitious novel and just Mm -hmm. in terms of the themes that I tackled. And it has a beautiful endorsement from my own, one of my own favorite writers, Jodi Picot on the cover and um, just really uh, some of the 
people who I've looked up to my whole career who came forward in support of this novel. Um, Jocelyn Jackson, Jodi Picoult, uh, Patty Callahan Henry. It's just amazing. Um, and uh, it's so it came out in hardcover this year, but it still has a paperback launch coming out. So it will be out in paperback in February. And um, but it's currently available in all the other formats it's on audio, too. Oh, yeah. And this is the first time that I've had an audiobook narrated by two narrators. So each oh, sister, uh, yeah. each sister in the um, story got her own narrator. So it goes back and forth between the two narrators and they did a beautiful job with it. So it's currently available on ebook or audiobook or hardcover, and then it will be new in paperback. Um, Very cool. Yeah, good. So if people are listening, this is a great one to check out. Um, if you are from, aren't familiar um, with any of, you know, Jessica's previous books, um, we would encourage you to, uh, to check this one out. Also, she does have um, the previous uh, stories that she's written. And um, wh- is there a website or where could they get more information about some of your, uh, some of your novels or some of your other writing? Yes. So I'm at jessicastrauser.com and I'm also on, I'm pretty active on social media. So I'm on um, Facebook and Instagram at Jessica Strauser author. Um, not as many people use Twitter anymore, but I'm on there too at Jessica Strauser. And I also, um, so I still contribute to um, Writer's Digest as an editor at large from, from the outside now, even though I'm not on a full-time staff, I also contribute to um a website called career authors. Um, and that is a small but mighty website that is run by, uh, Agatha award nominee and Emmy nominated reporter, Hank Felipe Ryan and uh, literary agent Paula Mounier and myself. And we have, uh, Brian Andrews who writes military thrillers and Dana Isaacson who used to work inside publishing with some hugely big names and is now a freelance editor. So it's this contributing staff of five editors and, you know, we've got novelists, but also agents and editors, and it's completely free. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's tons of, um, instructional articles on there. We have guest posts from guest contributors every single week. Um, and what I like about the, and so you can also find me there. I post something relating to the craft of writing at least once a month Hmm. there. And, um, the great thing about our email newsletter is you only get it once a month. Um, so you don't get it every (laughs) week or every, I just feel like every time I subscribe to anything, all of a sudden I'm getting like four emails a day. And if you don't want to follow career authors on social media, you can just subscribe and get one email of um, free instructional articles every month. But I got to tell you, um, this week we have, um, by the time this airs, it will be maybe a week or two old, but we have an excerpt from Julia Cameron's new book. Um, So there's so many writers in my community who swear by Julia Cameron's book, The Artist's Way, which came out like 25 years ago and, you know, talks about the discipline of morning pages and so many of the things that we were just talking about. And she has this new book coming out in January called Seeking Wisdom that is really about um, her spiritual Hmm. journey and how she approaches the artist's way from that perspective and just knowing what a difficult couple of years it's been for so many people while the pandemic has been going on, 
She has a lot of exercises about um, being able to nurture your creativity and your productivity on the page in times of stress hmm. when the world around you kind of seems like it's on fire. So yeah. uh, there's an excerpt from her new book up as an exercise on career authors right now. So for the aspire, really writers at all levels who are listening to that, you can also find me on career authors and that's a free resource that if you don't know about it, you might want to add. That's fantastic. It sounds like a very timely article. And um, I, I know a bunch of those names from the people that you've mentioned. Some of them have been on the podcast before. And so I'm really excited about that. I didn't know about that site. So I'll have to check that out myself as well. And so... Um, and we would love to have you contribute anytime, obviously. Oh, well, that'll be fun. We'll definitely do that. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Well, um, our t- looks like our time's about up, but Jessica, thanks so much for being on the show and just for your great insights and um, just sharing from your experience over the years. You are always so much fun to talk to, and I'm so glad you're still doing this podcast. It's so helpful. So thank you. Yeah, of course. And so um, do check out her books, as we mentioned earlier, A Million Reasons Why, and some of the others uh, earlier ones, you can check out her website and find out all the information you need about that. I want to thank everyone for listening today and for uh, tuning in. For more info about our guests and to check out other interviews, you can search for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, or click to thestoryblender.com. Don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts Friday evenings. I did want to mention, too, that the Story Blender is honored to be one of the sponsors of a premier fiction writing intensive coming up November 5 through 6 here in 2021. Um, Fictionintensive.com has all of the information, but it'll be a two-day virtual event. We're even offering 10-page critiques. It's very extremely limited. in the critique department. So if you're at all interested in getting some feedback from a professional editor on your writing, check out fictionintensive.com. With all of that, I want to close up. And as I do, I want to remind you to tell your stories well, my friends, and always remember. The art of the story is all in the blend. Take care, everyone, and we'll see you next time.